0: This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to be back. I know Jake said last Sunday, but it is summer, so like 50% of us will be out each week, uh, it seems like for the next eight or nine weeks. But um, we spent a couple of weeks ago uh, away from here learning at a biblical intensive with uh, N.T. Wright, British New Testament scholar. And then Sharon and I, Sharon met me with the kids, uh, and we spent uh, a week or so with our families there. It's good to be back. We uh, averaged about 106 to 108 daily temperatures while we were in Texas. Uh, most of the first uh, few days were 108. And uh, I noticed when we were pulling back into Georgia Friday evening as we were getting closer to the house, it was 20 degrees cooler than it was the day before as we were going through East Texas. So that was nice, it was 102 as we were coming through East Texas uh, Thursday afternoon and it was uh, 82. Now I understand we had some warm weather, but not, not that bad, so it's good. Uh, Good to be back takes forever to get out of the state of texas when you start on the western side So we we left texas from sharon's uh, mom's house in lubbock and it took us uh, almost nine hours to get to the louisiana state line of course, there's a stop or two in there, but uh, It takes a while and up spending the night in rustin and then came on in the next day So good to be with you here this morning. Um uh, last week, we rolled out the notes section, sermon notes, in the, in the app for Lost Mountain Baptist Church. If you have that with you, you can go ahead and open that this morning. You can download it on your device. If you uh, would like to this morning, you can follow along in the sermon notes section. If your uh, phone is like mine, the app will open quickly. Uh, you tap on sermon notes, tap on week two of Acts. Uh, it may take a minute um, to come up. Mine did this morning, but you're welcome to follow along there uh, if you Want to? This morning we're going to be uh, looking at the life of the Apostle Paul as we're really introduced to him uh, as Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts. Tom Holland is a, a British author uh, who's written a number of, of best-selling uh, historical books around uh, the classical age and medieval age, things on the Greco-Roman world, so on and so forth. He wrote a book um, two years ago, I believe, might be three now, but called Dominion. Dominion, how the Christian revolution remade the world. I highly uh, recommend Tom Holland's book, Dominion, to you if you are a reader, if you are a reader. It's not, it's not a hard book, it's not technical, but it's long, maybe 500 pages, 600, um, but it's a fascinating read. Tom Holland is a man who uh, was not a Christian for most of his adult life. And as a historian, as he studied and wrote and studied and wrote, uh, came uh, face-to-face with the, the power and the effect and uh, the world-changing nature of Christianity. And it was the, the impact, the result of Christianity that God used to find His way in and to, to get the gospel into the heart of Tom Holland as he became a follower of Christ. He, he talked about in an interview last year, his thoughts about the Apostle Paul. And he said the writings of Paul, though brief, and they are incredibly brief. Paul wrote most of our New Testament, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to uh, most first century writers uh, whose writings live on to today. It's, it's almost nothing. But Holland noted that the letters of Paul, the writings of Paul, along with the four gospels, along with the four gospels in the Bible, would have to rank, in his opinion, as the most influential writings in human history. He, he talked about how Paul himself sets up ripple effects of revolution throughout Western history that influence everything from our thinking and establishment of international law to our views of individual human rights. Uh, The 11th century papal revolution, which you don't need to know about, but was this idea um, that society needed to be reborn, needed to be uh, reconfigured, that it uh, it was out of alignment, was a ripple effect of Paul and his writing and his theology. The Reformation in the 16th century, the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries were further revolutions and ripples that came from the writings and the thinking of The Apostle Paul, what accounts for this? What accounts for this disproportionate size of historical and global influence from the life of one man who was simply originally a first century contemporary Jewish man with Jesus from Tarsus who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah? What caused him to have such a profound impact on all of history? And could what caused him to have such a profound impact on all of human history be the very same elements that God wants to use and is using in your life to both redeem you and transform you and call you to purpose and to meaning in life that so many of us are searching for in all the wrong places? Those are the questions God has before us this morning. Before we jump into Acts chapter 9, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the light of life you've given us today, for the air in our lungs. God, for the ability to be here in this place. God, I thank you and I lift up before you everyone in this room today. God, who's chosen uh, to join with your people in worship, to be present, to be faithful. God, to place themselves before you, to be formed into the people of God. Father, I lift up those specifically who are hurting this morning. God, those who have yearnings in their heart, in their mind, in their soul that are yet to be fulfilled. God, I lift up the fathers to you. Today, on this day, that our nation recognizes fathers, even in a culture where so many are physically or emotionally absent or both, God. And I ask you to give the fathers in this room courage to follow you, God, to awaken those in this room to the truth of who you are, God, who aren't following you. Be with us. Open your word to us now. Speak to us as only you can. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's jump into Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. While you're finding your way there, um, Jake spoke a little bit last week about the, the promises of God the fulfillment of those promises that we see early in Acts and the result of those fulfilled promises in the community life where men and women were drawn together in deep, consistent weekly fellowship, where they released this sense of of personal entitlement and ownership of their resources, not in some kind of socialistic way, but in a way that demonstrated hearts and minds who'd been changed by God, who'd been impacted by generosity, and they wanted to share with one another that which was at their disposal we saw how the the promises of christ that his disciples once the holy spirit fills their lives fills your lives would be his witnesses was beginning to to ripple out it was beginning to to grow out in ever-increasing circles and what we see in the life of saul the apostle paul this morning is an even um greater widening of that you saw The the death of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, who became the the first person to give his life for Jesus Christ last week. Um, And then the witnesses of Christ were scattered following that. Fulfilling, even though through a negative event from a human standpoint, that which God had said would happen. Because there's no stopping our God. He created the world. He created you. Human history exist within his sovereign plan and will and power, and he will bring about every single one of his purposes in his time. There's nothing that human beings can do to stop it. There's nothing that any nation or power or president or ruler or empire can do to thwart God's purposes and plans for his world. Now, let's look this morning at this man that many of us know as the Apostle Paul. We'll read verses 1 through 9 beginning. Verse 9. Meanwhile, meanwhile, um, as disciples are spreading as a result of Stephen's stoning, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women... He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Let me pause there just for a minute. Just for a minute. It's important that we remember that this this little tidbit, this statement by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is so unique that we need not just brush over it. It was unbelievably unusual, uh, almost completely unheard of, for anyone under authority to be looking for both men and women to take as prisoners. New Testament scholars and historians note that women must have been beginning already to have an influential role in the ministry of the gospel and the spread of the ministry of the gospel at this time, or Saul would have had no reason to ask for letters to arrest both men and women who were proponents of the way. Women were so discounted as if to be unseen in Saul's day. One of the reasons... It's not just their faithfulness. They were certainly faithful to Jesus as Lord. But one of the reasons that most of the male uh, disciples of Jesus, the apostles, those closest to him, scattered at his crucifixion and the women stayed was that the women were perceived as being no threat. They were, in a sense, unseen. It didn't matter where women went. They could come and go because religion, politics, power, law, leadership was the purview of men and men alone. In this world. And there's a clue here that that is beginning to change with the filling of the Holy Spirit into his community. Verse 3 As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, not saying Lord as a a submissive way and a statement of his believing that he was being spoken to by the Messiah, but simply acknowledging that one greater than him was speaking to him at that time and addressing him. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Let me say overall, the first thing that we see here when we ask what happened to the Apostle Paul is we see that uh, just as he did in, in Saul's day, Paul's day, God calls you, God calls calls you into a redemptive relationship that's how all of this stuff starts that's how all of this stuff starts is God calls you into a redemptive relationship when you look at this what you see here is God's great initiative God intercedes he intervenes in the life of Paul as he's going. Saul and Paul, um, some of you know, some of you don't. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people say uh, God changed his name to Paul. That's, that's actually not what happened at all. Uh, Saul and Paul, Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. Uh, he went by Saul until uh, he received his commission, his calling from God um, to, to go and to carry the, the gospel to the Gentiles. And then it seems Uh, like he preferred, and certainly uh, those around him prefer to call him by his Roman name at that time, Paul. So I'll use those um, interchangeably this morning. But he's on the road, he gets close to Damascus, and then suddenly, dramatically, powerfully in verse 3, a light from heaven flashed around him. God intervenes, God takes the initiative with Saul while he's traveling. This is is another picture of the grace of God. How many of us in here this morning could stand, if asked, and give a testimony of a time in our life when God intervened for our good? If nothing else, all of us in here who claim the name of Christ and claim to be uh, forgiven and restored to a relationship with God should be able to give such a testimony of the time when we weren't seeking God, but he sought us out. And it doesn't have to be dramatic like it is here. This is a historical redemption of an individual that God was choosing to use in a very unique, historic, and eternal way when it came to his redemptive mission. It doesn't have to be dramatic that, this way. It could be quiet. It could happen over a period of time in your life. You may not even remember the specific time that you came to believe or the specific day. And that should be no cause, no cause for you to doubt. Most of the disciples of Jesus, we don't know when they actually got it. It's very clear that prior to the resurrection, they didn't. We don't know at what point after it, everything clicked together for them. So it doesn't have to be dramatic like it is here, but God intervenes. There's a call that comes. A call from God, putting your life before you. Jesus says to him, Here, what's amazing is before Jesus has even said anything, look at verse 4. He falls to the ground. Now, some people will say he fell off his horse. There's actually no biblical text that says the apostle Paul was riding a horse. It's very unlikely that Paul was riding a horse. Uh, A guy painted this centuries later and painted him on a horse. And so now it's like people saying, Eve took and ate the apple. Uh, we don't know. It was some, some kind of fruit. We don't know it was an apple. Uh, it's very unlikely that Paul was riding a horse. But he falls to the ground and he hears this voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? One of the important things I don't want you to miss this morning is that when the call, call of God comes to you, it comes to you personally. You personally. Your wife's faith can't save you, can't make you right with God. Your husband's faith can't save you and make you right with God. Your parents' faith, your grandparents, God doesn't have grandchildren. He has children. And Jesus, the risen, not only the risen, what's amazing here is that Saul sees not just the resurrected Christ as many many others had before him. He has an encounter with the risen, exalted, and glorified Christ whose very presence in the form of a light from heaven knocks Saul to the ground. And he asks him, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? And Saul goes from the persecutor and the subject of his action to the listener, to the receiver. He says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. I've noted this many times before, but I just want to do it again, that to persecute Jesus' church is to persecute him. To stand against Jesus' church is to stand against him. To stand against the truth of God is to stand against God himself. And in a culture where we live now, that more and more and more and more has drifted further and further from the church, not just uh, to apathy now, but to Uh, antagonism toward the church and the gospel, the the real danger is that those who take this attitude don't just stand against us. They stand facing against Christ himself, who so unites himself with his people that he can say, persecution towards you is, is persecution of me. And I will, at a time of my choosing, answer it. And I want you to see the echoes of the the gospel story here. Paul falls to the ground in verse 4, or Saul does. He gets up from the ground in verse 8. There is, in a sense, a death of much of who he has been and a resurrection to most of who he's going to be here. It's this picture of an encounter with Jesus that becomes a breaking point in a person's life. There was who you were before and who you've been since. It's almost not only a a symbol of, or echoes of the gospel, but it's a symbol of baptism as well. There's a going down and coming up of Saul at this time. At the the danger of causing song lyrics to, to come to your mind, he is in a sense blinded by the light. He's blinded by the light. All of this deals with God's call in Saul's life and in your life into a redemptive relationship. Paul states this, speaks to this a little bit differently in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. As he's talking about following Jesus, in Philippians 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which, now listen to his language, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is literally the language of apprehension or arrest that on his way to Damascus, if you don't understand what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus, and you don't understand the theology and the belief that Saul brought into his life at this time, and how it was changed, you're not going to understand much of Paul's writings. Because Paul, his writings, his theology, is deeply immersed and deeply formed by what happened to him on the road to Damascus. He says Christ apprehended him. G. Walter Hansen says this about Paul's phrase. He said, Christ's apprehension of Paul means that Paul has been captured By Christ, taken hold of by Christ, and Christ will not let go of him. Can I say this morning, if you've been apprehended by Christ, if Christ has taken hold of you, he will not let go of you. It doesn't matter what disease comes your way. It doesn't matter what relational fracture comes your way. It doesn't matter what happens to your bank account. It doesn't matter what you face. Christ will not let go of you. It doesn't matter what sin you find yourself in. Christ will not let go of you. Hansen goes on and says, Because he, that is Paul, has been apprehended by Christ, Paul has all the reason, endurance, assurance, and joy he needs to pursue Christ. The apprehension happens first, and the pursuit happens second. It's grace. He is running hard after Christ with his heart wide open. Isn't that a great phrase? running hard after Christ with his heart wide open. How many of you would say this morning that could describe you, that you're running hard after Christ with your heart wide open to receive Christ because Christ has already received him and arrested him by his love. Divine grace is the source and goal of the human pursuit. But God doesn't just call Paul into a redemptive relationship God doesn't just call you and put the call out before you to a redemptive relationship and I want to say a a word here before I go on about the term conversion I think I do think that we can aptly talk about this as as Saul's conversion or Paul's conversion but you have to be careful because on both sides of this experience on the road to Damascus Saul was faithful to the same God. He worshiped the same God. He loved the same God. He was zealous for the same God. It was not conversion mostly as we use it today to talk about someone who converts from one religion to another or from no religion to Christianity or something like that. It it was uh, more so a, a, a new understanding, a conversion of thinking and of belief within his Jewish theology about who the Messiah was and the place of God's Messiah in redemptive history. So I want to make sure we're aware of that. But God doesn't just call you into a redemptive relationship. He commissions you to a life of ministry and service. This is really important. Because I think mostly in the West, we've stopped after God calls you into a redemptive relationship. We say, what do you do then? We come to church and you just do Bible study after 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 Bible study. And you hope somehow you pop out as Jesus on the other side. And it has not worked. Simply coming to church and doing Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study has not, generally speaking, created transformed men and women. Who give of themselves sacrificially in the way that Jesus does. Who lay down their lives and their preferences for the sake of the gospel, the word of God and the mission of God. Men and women who are characterized by the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment and the fruit of the Spirit. And part of that is because we've been teaching part of the gospel and not the entire gospel. God doesn't just call you into a redemptive relationship so, uh, one day you can quote unquote go to heaven. He gives you a commission into a life of mission and service. There is no salvation without sentness. You are not saved by God if you are not sent by God as an ambassador, as a herald of his good news into the different domains of life that God has placed you. Let's look at this in Acts 9, 10 through 19. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. So you've got a call going to Ananias like it went to Saul. But Ananias is already a disciple of Jesus. Yes, Lord, he answers. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight straight Street. An interesting tidbit of just trivia, Straight Street. I don't know why I'm having trouble saying that this morning. Straight Street is still in Damascus today. It's still an east-west Roman-built street that you can go and walk down the very street where this coming encounter took place. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. In a sense, Ananias says, let's just hold on just one little minute. Let's talk about this. I'm not as excited about this as you may be, Lord. Maybe you don't know who this guy is. Some of you uh, have had God ask you to do things before, where you felt like saying, God, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure you have all the details here. I sense this is going to be an unpleasant task. But I will tell you, it's in, fo- it's in following those promptings that God gives us by His Spirit that are clear to discerning believers. Even if we're nervous about doing them, that our faith really grows and that following Jesus really becomes exciting in the way that I think our souls yearn for. He says in verse 14, "'He he has come here with authority from the chief priest "'to arrest all who call on your name.'" Verse 15, "'But the Lord said to Ananias, "'Go, this man is my chosen instrument "'to proclaim my name to the Gentiles "'and their kings and to the people of Israel. "'I will show him how much he must suffer for my name.'" The Lord says to Ananias, don't worry about that. The persecutor is going to become the proclaimer. I'm already on top of this. I have chosen him to be my instrument. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul. Brother Saul. Right here we see the the very beginnings of a theology that Paul works out fully, this reality that you and I in Christ are family. We constitute a new family, a new kind of family. We are brothers and sisters. We are adopted siblings into the family of God. And Ananias comes to Saul and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you We're coming here. I love this. There's such a tenderness that God gives throughout this dramatic encounter. He comes to Ananias, and he reveals so much to Ananias that when Ananias comes and talks to Saul, Saul can know for sure that it's Jesus who sent him. How else could Ananias know this? Like, nobody texted him yet. Hey, Ananias, you won't believe what just happened. There's a bunch of light, and we didn't understand it, but here's what Saul said, and he's blind now. So he goes and he says, the same Lord who spoke to you has spoken to me, our Lord Jesus. He has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. He regained his strength. What God is saying here, and Paul says himself later in Acts, in Acts chapter 22 and chapter 26, when Paul gives first-hand accounts of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, is that God not only calls him redemptively into a relationship with him through Jesus that he now knows to be God's long-awaited Messiah, but he commissions him, and he commissions Paul, obviously, into a unique life of mission. And service but all of us if you take the new testament seriously even a cursory reading know that we've been called into a life of mission and service paul would talk about this in uh, this time a little more in the book of galatians galatians chapter 1 verses 11 through 17 paul writes to the church in the region of galatia and says i want you to know brothers and sisters that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous For the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. So there's a kind of pause here that Luke doesn't get into in his 30,000 foot view of the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. Paul unpacks it more in his letter to the Christians in Galatians. He says, I didn't immediately go to Jerusalem or go somewhere and gather with disciples and, and learn all of this. Instead, I went to Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. Remember, where was he headed originally? To Damascus. And then he he goes after his experience with Jesus and his encounter with Ananias at Straight Street. Straight Street he goes to Arabia. And you hear through, throughout Paul's language here undeniable echoes of Elijah. Paul, if nothing else, was a, a, a walking scripture text, he knew the scriptures inside and out. You see that in his letters. And you and I, most of us don't know them that way, and we miss things like this. If you remember aspects of Elijah's story, because you wonder, why did Paul go to Arabia and what was he doing? If you remember Elijah, Elijah was serious about persecuting and experiencing victory over the false prophets of Baal, which he did. And then he has an encounter with a messenger from Queen Jezebel, who was a supporter of Baal. And after that, he's afraid and he's confused, and he runs off to Mount Horeb, which is in Arabia, and he spends time there, and he deals with God there, and God gives him a commission there. He says, Lord, I've been very zealous for you. What does Paul say in Galatians? That he's been very zealous for God. God does a little talking to Elijah. He reminds him who's God and who's the servant. And then he sends him back. He says, go and return to Damascus. You remember this? Go and return to Damascus and appoint new kings for Syria and Israel. And in Paul's language, Paul sees himself in the great tradition of the prophets like Elijah. He goes to Arabia, likely to Mount Sinai slash Horeb, same general area, to consult with God and say, all of my life I've thought this and I've believed this. And now there's a change to it. And what, is, what does God say? What do we just read? After Paul's time there, he's sent back to Damascus. But he comes back to Damascus declaring that there's a new king. And it ain't Caesar. It's Jesus. King not only of Israel, but of the entire world. He brings this message back. F.F. Bruce said that with no conscious preparation no conscious preparation, Paul found himself instantaneously compelled by what he saw and heard to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, was alive after his crucifixion, vindicated and exalted by God, and was now conscripting him into his service. In a sense, Paul was drafted. And yet all of us are drafted. Part of the problems that we have in the local church today and part of the problems that many of us have in our own walk with Jesus where we feel so disillusioned or kind of bored come from the fact that we have never accepted and begun to live out this commission to a life of service and ministry. And I'm not talking vocationally. God will call some to vocational mission and service for sure. The vast majority of his people, he calls to mission and service inside the different domains of life, wherever you find yourself working. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're trimming trees, if you're cooking burgers, if you're drawing up legal contracts, if you're working in a hospital, if you're working in a school, God is calling you to do it uniquely for his glory and his name. He's calling you to go into your work into your home, into your neighborhood, into the places that you frequent in a way that demonstrates new life, reconciliation with God that brings light and love and grace into your encounters with other people so that they might say in time possibly about you what we're asking about the Apostle Paul. Now, what has happened in this person's life that causes them to treat others like they do? That causes them to do their work the way that they do, that causes them to to think about their work the way that they do, where they take it incredibly seriously and they do it really well, but it doesn't own them. And that includes those of you who are stay at home moms. I can't think of a more demanding job, it doesn't have normal hours. You can't fire employees who are sassy. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a child of God, if you've been saved and restored, you have absolutely been commissioned to a life of mission and service. Just as Paul was, if not in the same way exactly that Paul was. And I was thinking about uh, this, preparing for this morning. This, this issue of living into the life of service and mission that God has given you is a lot like fishing. When we were uh, gone this week, especially at my, my parents' house, Cade and J.C.'s boyfriend Finley came with us, and they spent most of the day, every day, fishing. Didn't matter that it was 108. Something's wrong in the teenage mind. But they were out there all day. We wouldn't hear them. They wouldn't eat. They skip meals. They're fishing. We go pick them up, and we needed a fire hose to clean them off before they got into the vehicle because they didn't catch anything with the pole. They were going after them personally. Um, there's a, a park out on the edge of the town where I grew up that has a creek that runs through it, and a little dam and drops below it, and uh, and they were all over that. But the thing, the thing about fishing is that you figure it out over a period of time as you do it and as you learn more about it. You figure it out as you do it over time and as you learn more about it. And that is exactly how living out God's commission in your life to live a life of service and mission happens. You figure it out, you get a rhythm, you find that you love doing certain things. You find that when you do certain things, or you do certain things a certain way, other people benefit from it. Or you just find that God's given you a delight to simply go to work day in and day out, provide for your family, be faithful and consistent. But there's some trial and error involved, and don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. God calls you, God commissions you, and finally, God confirms His work in you through Spirit-produced fruit. These three things are essential, and they are always present. God calls you, God commissions you, and God confirms his work in you through spirit-produced fruit. Look at how this works out in the life of Saul. Skip. We'll skip for this morning, verses 23 through 25. Pick up verse 26. Well, let's go back. Let's start at 29. I was going to skip all that. Let's start at 29. Nope, let's start at 20. I don't know what's wrong with me this morning. Let's start at 20. At once, at once, after Paul had returned to Damascus and spent days with the disciples, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Saul, the persecutor, heads to Damascus to persecute members of the way. And then Saul returned from Arabia to Damascus, where he was intentionally headed in the first place. But instead of persecuting, he proclaims that Jesus is actually the Son of God. Verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? Remember, uh, Saul gave his approval for the stoning of Stephen. And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul's intellect is almost unmatched in human history. He knew the Old Testament scriptures in a way that after his encounter with Jesus, things began in time to become so clear for him. And his life, his commission immediately was beginning to bear fruit. Look at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was A disciple. You ever had a hard time believing that someone has actually changed? You ever had somebody maybe in your life that had a hard time believing that you had actually changed? But Barnabas, verse 27, took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased In numbers, God is confirming his call and his commission of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, by producing spirit generated fruit in the life and through the life of the Apostle Paul. Let me tell you, there's one Apostle Paul, but this call, this commission, this confirmation through spirit produced fruit is to be the normative experience in the lives of followers of Jesus. Your experience and my experience. If you'll remember in John 15, 16, these won't be on the screen, but Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I chose you. I called you and I appointed you to go and to bear good fruit. Fruit in keeping with followers of mine. That whatever you ask of the Father would be granted to you. And this is my command, that you love one another. That you love one another. This is to be a normal experience for believers. This is part of how the church expands and expands and expands as men and women and students in schools and places of employment and neighborhoods are living lives of service and mission. Sharon and I have friends named Brian uh, Brian and Sonia back in Texas. We uh, did undergraduate degrees together, and then uh, Sonia went on and did a master's of social work, and Brian went on and did a master's in speech pathology. Uh, Brian has uh, spent most of his life working um, at a local hospital as a speech pathologist and then own up through administration um, into the higher tiers of hospital leadership there. Sonia was a social worker, and she's worked at uh, Mother's Day out and done more social work and stayed home with kids for a portion of that time. Um, but we were such great friends. Loved them. love them today. Brian opened doors for my dad to be able to, to, to get in and get uh, a surgery he needed when it, it was just tangled up in bureaucracy. Some of you have experienced uh, hospital or medical bureaucracy before. Uh, It can can be nasty, not so much because of the hospitals, but because of insurance. But uh, Sharon and I would often say, I wonder if God has some kind of vocational call to ministry in Brian and Sonia's life, or if they're just how normal Christians should be living. Because Brian and Sonia have lived so much for Jesus. They're so passionate about Jesus, so faithful to Jesus in their church attendance, in raising their family, in living out Christ in the different places that they work. They're not perfect. Their marriage isn't perfect. Their home isn't perfect. But they have demonstrated, as long as we've known them, a serious commitment to Jesus Christ. And the more I've thought about that over time, the more I think, no, they're just, you know, humanly speaking, what God calls all of us to be as followers of Jesus. Serious men and women whose time and relationships and finances and uh, commitments all reflect a priority of the gospel. A priority of the gospel you were made for this you were made for this and if you've stopped after the call part brothers and sisters you're missing most of what god has in store for you and if you need help figuring out this this commissioning part man put that on your connection card and we'll follow up just say i need help i need help figuring out my place of of mission and ministry and service And we'll talk with you and walk with you through that. You were made for this. In your app, you'll find some some further reading if you want to do it on the life of the Apostle Paul. This is what God's called you to. And again, it is personal. And if you've not personally had that encounter with Jesus, my prayer is that that is happening in your heart and life this morning. That you come face to face with Jesus as a risen Lord and you bow before him. And in a sense, you go down and you come back up a different person. And we're able to walk with you through the new life that God has given you. Let's stand and pray. (laughs) Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for giving to your church a life like Paul. God, a human being, not perfect, saved by grace like all of us. But through your sovereignty, a chosen instrument whose life, whose suffering, whose faithfulness, whose writings would impact not only the course of church history and Christian history, but the course of the world. God, I pray for those in this room right now who are wrestling with the fact that that maybe they've said yes to you, but it stopped there. And if they're honest in this place, they're not living a commissioned life of mission and service that reflects who your people are to be. God, I I pray that you lead them deeper into an understanding of who they are in you. God, I pray for those who, who like Saul this morning, may have a general belief uh, in you. They may have, have been around your people and been, in a sense, part and included in your people. They've been singing to you for years. God, but they have never had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, just like Saul, and they need one. Lord Jesus, go after them today. Apprehend them, take hold of them. Reveal yourself to them. And God, I pray throughout this room, this morning, tomorrow, and in the weeks and months to come, that your confirming grace would produce, through the work of the Spirit, fruit in keeping with true disciples in the lives of everyone in this room. I pray in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.